0: I'm Simon, for those of you that don't know me, and it's good to see you all here this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to James chapter 2, and we will read from there in just a moment. We'll be reading verses 1 to 12. We're continuing looking at the book of James this morning, a letter that's written by Jesus' half-brother. And we've seen a number of themes so far After uh, over the past two months, really, we've been in it. And there's a uh, different number of topics. So we've looked at how to understand and respond to suffering and temptations, uh, the importance of the tongue, how our speech can be used greatly either for good or for evil. And we've looked at the relationship between faith, what we believe, and works, what we actually do. And this morning we come to a section just after James has been talking about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom, which is part of a larger discussion he's having on speech. And so our passage, our reading this morning continues these themes and develops them. What does worldly wisdom or or godly wisdom look like in practice So let's go ahead and read James chapter 4 together. And if you're able to, please stand with me as we recognize that this is God's word. Starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Lord, um, We come from various situations over this past week. Some of us will have had um, positive weeks and others will have had um, very difficult weeks. You know the things that are distracting us this morning. And so we ask that you would give us relief from those. We ask that you would help sharpen our minds to be able to concentrate on what you have to say to us this morning. We thank you that your spirit is at work. You promised to go before us. You promised that your word will not return to you empty. We know that you are speaking to us. And so we thank you for that, Lord. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. May we be bold enough to not just um, understand what we hear, but actually to put it into practice as well. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. As children grow up, uh, naturally they want to become more and more independent. So one of the uh, interesting things that my wife and I are experiencing at the moment is even at such a young age, uh, our son is just over two years old, he wants more and more independence each and every day. Uh, And so he wants to make the decisions. He wants to be given the choices. He wants to be the decision maker. And so the other day, for instance, I gave him a choice he could either drink milk or water you know this is pretty important decision in the daily life of a two-year-old and so he said that he wanted milk he's pretty confident about that answer and so the gracious father that I am I got the milk and I poured out the milk and put it into his cup and I gave the cup to my lovely son whom I love whom I serve Um, And at that moment, he broke down crying hysterically um, (laughs) right before my eyes. You know, there are some times where you think you're starting to get the hang of this parenting thing, and then you realize, nope, (laughs) not really. Still got a number of things to learn. That was one of those times. And the problem was, is he wanted it to be water, even though he'd asked for milk. And we've been back and forth over this a number of times. This is not the first time it's happened. I doubt it will be the last time that it's happened. Um, And I've tried giving him water instead, and then he breaks down again, crying because it's not milk. Um, The thing he doesn't seem to have grasped at the moment is choosing between two options. He doesn't understand that sometimes you can have one thing, and that means that you can't have the other thing. Uh, We make decisions frequently between mutually exclusive options. Uh, Accepting a job in one place means declining a job in another place. Uh, Living in one area means not living in another area we have to make choices between things that are mutually exclusive and our passage this morning lays out a simple idea which is that there are two mutually exclusive options for us friendship with god or friendship with the world the theme of this passage is friendship with the god friendship with god and friendship with the world Are mutually exclusive friendships. You can't have them both. It's a contradiction. The big idea of the book of James is spiritual wholeness, not being double minded, as it says in verse 8 of our reading. It's having both faith and works, it's authentic faith in action, the subtitle of our series. It's being consistent in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions, professing Christ and living in light of that, Uh, being single-minded. The alternative, which James is speaking against all throughout his letter, is being split, being double-minded, being torn, trying to have what we think is the best of both worlds. Except, as Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Here, James teaches us no one can have two friends, in this case. The world and God are mutually exclusive friendships. So this passage gets to the heart of the problem. What does it look like to be friends with the world? And bear in mind that Jesus, James, is writing to Christians here. And then, what does it look like to be friends with God? To avoid being friends with the world? What's the antidote to friendship with the world? That's what James shows us here. So what does friendship with the world look like? And he gives this variety of different characteristics And so we see in verse 2, he says, it's coveting, the desire for something that is not rightfully ours, envy. It's a characteristic of friendship with the world. Verse 2 again, he says, murder, which seems extreme. He's writing to Christians here, they're really murdering one another in their churches. I hope that's not a problem here. And yet, when we realize James is drawing upon the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching in Matthew five to seven, I encourage you over this next week: read this passage again and read Matthew chapters five to seven. See how much James is drawing upon just these this short section of his brother's teaching. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself speaks about murder, and what does he compare it with? Anger. And hatred against another. How many of us have murdered someone in our heart? And in doing so, reflected friendship with the world more than friendship with God. Another characteristic we see in verse 11 being friends with the world can include speaking evil against others. James picks up on one of his favorite themes we've looked at a lot so far, which is speech. Uh, our speech is the overflow of our heart. It's, it's the litmus test of our heart. If you want to know how your heart's doing, what's within you, pay attention to the words that come out of your mouth, whether it's in public or in private. It will give you a good indication of what's going on. then verse 11 again, judging others. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. These are each characteristics of someone who is friends with the world. But there are two more that I think are worth highlighting this morning. And the first is conflict. Look with me at verse 1, how this passage begins What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It doesn't take us long to look around the world and see that one of the great characteristics um, that defines different ages, uh, different periods of history, and different locations, what they all have in common is conflict. You see conflict at a global scale. Uh, there's a New York Times article that states that over 3,400 years of recorded history, 268 years of that, eight percent, about eight percent of that, was spent at peace. And that's when uh, we're actually basing that upon the evidence that we have from that whole period, and when a war is defined as when at least a thousand people Lose their lives over 3,400 years of human history, and eight percent, maybe, of peace. Conflict is a great characteristic of the world. And it's not just physical conflict. you I mean, look at the, the political conflict that's going on at the moment. It doesn't take you long to see how people are responding to one another, hatred between others. Uh, the kinds of things that are said to try and smear others, to break them down. And then there's individual conflict as well, personal conflict. Who of us hasn't uh, had fights and arguments with family members, with friends, with others? And unfortunately, ever since the beginning, the church has not been exempt from conflict either. The Apostle Paul's writings are filled with pleas for the church to be unified and for people to stop fighting one another. You just have to read 1 Corinthians to get a bit of a glimpse into this. The reason Paul is so concerned with conflict, the reason that James here is so concerned with conflict, is that when we allow conflict to occur between us as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are declaring to God, you are not my friend. That's how severe conflict is in the church. That's the reality that is going on in our fights and quarrels with one another. When we fight among ourselves, however it may look, we reflect more the image of the world rather than the image of God. The next characteristic of a friend of the world is twisted prayer. And actually, it even starts off worse. Verse 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. Asking God is a fundamental aspect of prayer. Prayer isn't less than that, it's more than that. Prayer is thanksgiving and confession and praise, and more as well. But it's not less than asking. Bringing our needs before God is a clear demonstration of our understanding of reality. It says, I understand, God, that I cannot ultimately provide for myself, that you are the giver of all good gifts, that you are powerful, and that I am not. It's actually a form of humility, knowing that we can't provide for ourselves, that God is the only one that that can. And prayerlessness is both a cause and a symptom of friendship with the world. It leads to friendship with the world, and it's a result of it. It's this vicious cycle. J.C. Ryle. The Bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century once wrote, Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke prayer. Friendship with the world chokes out prayer. What Ryle means is that unrepentant sinning will inevitably lead to the death of prayer in your life. But James goes, James goes on. Even if a friend of the world does pray, it's with wrong motives. It's, it's a form of twisted prayer. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's got selfish desires at the heart of it. The nature of prayer reveals the nature of our ultimate friendship. The nature of our prayer reveals the nature of our ultimate friendship. It's indicative of where we are placing our hope, where our true friendship lies. What does how you pray reveal about who you're friends with? If we're being truly honest with ourselves... Does it reflect friendship with the world more than friendship with God? Too often my own prayer, or lack of it, reflects friendship with the world. So James just heaps up these descriptions of what it means to be a friend of the world. When we look at our life and we see these characteristics, it should set off alarm bells, It should be a warning signal for us because this is what it looks like to be a friend of the world. And it's not like it's intentional. It's not like we intentionally decide to be an enemy of God and a friend of the world, but how easily we can fall into living the way that the world lives, reflecting the image of the world. And what's at the heart of all of this? What's the root, the source? Look again at verse 1 with me. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's our passions, or as the New Living Translation says, our evil desires. This is friendship with the world. Friendship with the world is being oriented towards the self. That's the heart of the matter. That's why James can go immediately from talking about these selfish desires to then in verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's talking about the same thing here. And don't we see the truth of this in life? In our experiences, don't we see the truth of this? What characterizes the way of the world? What causes wars? Why do people murder? Why do people covet and envy? Because of selfish desires. Our thoughts, words, actions oriented towards ourselves. Which is actually making ourselves God in our own lives. See what James calls his readers in verse 4. You adulterous people. It's not much of a compliment. It's a bit of an insult, actually. Just after he's called them brothers and sisters, he said, well, if you're doing these things, you are friends of the world, you adulterous people. The way of the world is idolatry. It's spiritual idolatry against God. You see this theme all throughout the Old Testament uh, where God calls upon the faithfulness of his people as they are to him uh, his bride, I and mean, in he is to them a, a husband, and he will be faithful. Here's the challenge for us in all of this. We naturally want to see the problem as outside of ourselves, not inside us. No one wants to believe that they are selfish. I don't want to believe that I'm selfish. I would much rather believe that it's your fault, not mine. Or, in fact, if we do accept that we are somewhat selfish, then we diminish it. We gut it of its force. We downplay it. In contrast, James wants us to take an honest look at ourselves. The Lord wants us to take an honest look at ourselves this morning. Do we think that we're friends with him, but actually we've deceived ourselves? Have we fallen into the pattern of how the rest of the world lives? What do our thoughts, words, and actions tell us about where our friendship lies? The history of the church is unfortunately filled with people who have made friendship with the world rather than friendship with God. When they've sought after money, sex, and power instead of seeking after God. And now they remain all but a footnote in history and serve as a warning against us. A warning for us against that kind of life. I don't want us to fall into that trap. The book of Ecclesiastes in scripture is a bit of a strange book. Um, It's filled with some confusing statements, some things that seem contradictory. But the main point of it is that it's a reflection upon the meaning and purpose of life. And the way that the author goes about his study is he experiences all that he can Uh, He tries every kind of pleasure that he can. He he builds houses and he plants vineyards and plants gardens. He accumulates and stores up as much wealth as he can. He pursues as much sex as he can. He, He then becomes greater than anyone else. This is the kind of life that many people in our world dream about. And pursue and seek after. And at the end of it all, this is what the author says I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's all vanity. It's a mist, it's transient, passing, it's like a vapor, it's like trying to grasp smoke. It's like when my son tries to catch a bubble, and as his finger touches it, it disappears. That's what will be left in the end, nothing. It's all an illusion, That's what friendship with the world achieves in the end. It can never ultimately deliver. But the passage doesn't end there. After all of this warning, James then offers us the alternative friendship with God, the antidote to friendship with the world. How do we avoid friendship with the world and becoming enemies of God? What's the antidote? for friendship with the world? What are the characteristics of someone who is friends with God? And he shows us this in the form of a series of commands. If you look at verses 7 to 10. Actually, is about 10 altogether. And he just lists these. He blasts through them, one after the other. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter Be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And I think there are two that are particularly relevant for us this morning. The first is submitting to God. The beginning of the book of James starts off, quite surprisingly, kind of takes me aback. There are a number of different ways that James could introduce himself. Um, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus. It's a pretty good one. You'd use that if you could. Uh, Or maybe the apostle of God. But Instead, how he describes himself is as a servant. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He truly understands who he is and who God is. I don't think the idea of submission is particularly popular. It seems to contradict, and it does contradict, the idea that's preached in our culture of personal freedom. Someone having a a claim over our lives is at odds with our personal freedom. And yet a true and accurate understanding of God must lead to this. It must lead to submission. Brother Lawrence, in the book, The Practice of the Presence of God, describes a friend who has dedicated themselves to be always with God and to do nothing, say nothing, and think nothing which may displease him. And this without any other view than purely for the love of him and because he deserves infinitely more. Because he deserves infinitely more. And I think this helps us make sense of verse 5 in our reading. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he earns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? The point is, is that God has put us, our spirit within us. He has created our spirit and he rightfully deserves our obedience, honor, glory, and praise. He is rightfully jealous for us, just as a husband is rightfully jealous for his wife. By submitting to God, we declare his rightful place, the place that he deserves as Lord and King over our lives. We submit to him by obeying his commands, by accepting the truth he describes in scripture, whether we like it or not. We refuse to Make a God in our own image. And listen to the revelation that he has given. We submit to him by giving him primary position in our life. By committing to do nothing, say nothing, and think nothing which may displease him. Through each of these we declare that we are a friend of God, not of the world. Uh, This past week, a well-known musician released an album called Jesus is King, which is pretty radical, um, especially considering six years ago, he wrote a song called I Am a God. And in one of the songs in this new album, he says, follow Jesus, listen and obey. It's five words, follow Jesus, listen and obey. Follow wherever Jesus leads us. Listen and accept whatever he says. Obey all of his commands. I think that's a pretty accurate summary of what it looks like to submit to God. Follow, listen, and obey. The next characteristic of a friend of God is mourning over sin. Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I remember listening to an interview with a professing Christian, and the interviewer asked him a question, which was, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And his response was, I'm not sure that I have. I just go on and try and do a better job from there. I think if I do something wrong, I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I think in terms of let's go on and let's make it right, which almost sounds noble until you realize that it reflects the way of the world and a business mentality much more than God's commands in Scripture. Is there a problem? Then fix it. Did you make a mistake? Then do better next time. All that matters is results. All that matters is what you do, not your attitude. And yet scripture is quite the opposite. Lament, mourning, particularly over sin, is quite foreign to us. And yet when we read Scripture, particularly the Psalms, you read David's confession in Psalm 51. We see the importance of mourning, weeping, lamenting over our sin. God cares about our emotional reaction to sin because our emotional reaction to sin shows us, demonstrates what we really think and how we really feel about it. The right and the natural response is to truly, to truly understanding our sin is to mourn. Scripture speaks a great deal about the joy of the Lord and yet there are relevant times to sit and mourn and over our sin is one of those. It shows a true understanding of holiness of God uh, and our position before him. And why shouldn't we mourn when we know that our sin cost Jesus his very life? Uh, I wonder if others have remembered this aspect of lamentation much more than we have throughout church history. Something that we need to recapture. I say this as a A British person who's grown up with a stiff upper lip. Um, mm -hmm. Submitting to God and mourning over our sin. Two characteristics of a friend of God. But the most radical part of this whole passage isn't the descriptions it gives of friends with the world or, or friends with God. It's actually the promises that God gives us in response Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. How great are these promises? And they're not wishful thinking. God's not saying, okay, Simon, I'm going to try and do my best, but no promises. Don't get your hopes up. These are assurances. And we see these fulfilled all throughout Scripture. You see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness in the Gospels by the devil. And he resists him. And at the end, the devil flees. I wonder if James was thinking about his experience, his brother's experience, when he wrote these words. Are you in the midst of temptation? Do you feel like the devil is just wearing you down? The Lord promises if you resist, the devil will flee. Hold on to that hope. And then we see David in the Psalms, and we see him drawing near to God in worship, in confession, in praise. And we see God drawing near to him in response. Does God feel distant? He promises that he will draw near to you if you draw near to him. It's a, a paraphrase of one of C.S. Lewis's quotes Though our feelings come and go, God's love for us never changes. Our feelings change, and sometimes it feels like God is distant. remember that that may not be indicative of reality. It may feel as though God is distant, but he may be near. He promises he will draw near. And then we see the greatest act of humility in all scripture, in the sacrifice of Jesus, the death of the Son of God on behalf of our sins, for our forgiveness. He who willingly laid down his life and yet now he is exalted above all else. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian church, "'Being found in human form, "'Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient "'to the point of death, even death on a cross. "'Therefore God has highly exalted him "'and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, "'so that at the name of Jesus, "'every knee should bow in heaven and on earth "'and under the earth.'" And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you want assurance of these promises, look no further than the life of Jesus, who is also the means by which we were promised these in the first place. And he is the very foundation of our friendship with God. After all of the author's searching, the book of Ecclesiastes finishes with this The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Are you spending your life trying to catch bubbles? Or are you someone that God can call friend? Let's pray. Lord, may we not live double-minded lives. May we not be constantly torn between the world and between you. May we be wholeheartedly devoted, single minded, with you as the aim, the goal of our worship and praise. You as our sole friend. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to live as your friends. A certain characteristics, certain practices that define your friends. Help us to live those. We thank you that you promised the help of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Son who has made all of this possible through his death and resurrection. We thank you for the great promises that you've given us, Lord. If we resist the devil, he will flee from us, That if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And that if we humble ourselves, you will exalt us. We don't deserve any of this, Lord. But you are so merciful, so gracious, that you offer it to us anyway. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.